Welcome to Mimesis and Memory, a perspective from the future. My name is Patrick Carpenter, and this is my podcast in which I track my experience reading Ulysses as though I'm myself telling the story from five years in the future. Each episode contains a story told as a memory, and the stories were decided upon based on themes and emotions associated with each chapter. In this final compilation of my episodes, I've also included what I'm calling meta-transitions between each episode. You'll know when I'm in one of these meta-parts of the episode because they'll be marked by this sound. In them, I provide some commentary about my progression through the book and podcast. In this first episode, Telemachus, I think I was still searching for the voice of my podcast. It'll become evident as we move through the episodes that my voice came out more strongly later down the line. With that said, let's journey to the Martello Tower and jump into my first episode, recorded after reading the first chapter of Ulysses, Telemachus. Episode 1, Telemachus. When you're moving through your days in a state of grief, it's easy for time to get all out of whack. Sometimes it feels like a moment lasts for an hour. Others, two days pass by in the blink of an eye. Often, you're washed over with an odd, twisted feeling of deja vu, like you're living the same moments again and again. Days bleed together, and it becomes difficult to escape the frustrating feeling of repetitiveness. Back in early 2020, when the pandemic hit, those kinds of feelings were hard to run away from. One day in early April of that year, while sitting at my computer in my childhood home, still getting used to taking college classes online, I was delivered the news that my grandfather had passed away, quite suddenly. Though it wasn't abundantly clear at the time, looking back on it, it's exceedingly likely that he had been infected by the virus. Less than an hour later, I received a phone call. I myself had tested positive for the virus as well. Luckily, I was young and healthy, so I didn't suffer severe health consequences, though my symptoms did last longer than most others my age. My reason for looking back on that moment in my life is not to find meaning in my experience on that specific day. The real story, I believe, lies in my experience in the days that followed. Living with such grief and uncertainty threw me headfirst into a haze. My days started to feel the same. Living with the memory of that event had a more profound impact on my daily life over the course of the next year than I could have imagined. Sometimes it felt as though I was in a cycle that was difficult to escape. A number of months later, I began to read Ulysses. In reading the first chapter for the first time, much of the book flew completely over my head. But from what I could glean, it felt as though I recognized Stephen's experience. He begins the epic novel by waking up and interacting with his roommates. He's in mourning, still dealing with the death of his mother. As I neared the end of my reading of this first chapter, my own experience dealing with grief and loss kept popping into my head. Stephen seemed to be searching for something more, something deeper. It made me want to take a walk. Living with memories of a lost loved one can make you feel doomed to repeat the same boring day over and over again. Reading that first chapter of Ulysses made me realize that in every boring moment and every simple interaction, there can be something meaningful and worth considering. Even the most boring days teach us something about ourselves. And I needed something to reaffirm my confidence in the everyday. Though Stephen is still struggling to deal with his own grief in that first episode, he showed me that boring moments don't have to be just that. Sometimes, beauty can be found in that which is boring. 
I talk a lot about approaching the end of college throughout this podcast, and the first wind of that starts here. I'm quite the romantic when it comes to looking back at memories, and the making of this podcast has caught me entering one of the most sentimental times of my life. I wish I could say Joyce would be proud, but I doubt that he would. Something tells me he and I would have a very different outlook on life. In this next chapter, I look back at a memory from this year, my last in college. Here's my episode recorded after reading Nestor. My very best memories from college took place in the company of my closest friends. You know, the kind of friends who take your mind off the difficult things going on in your life. The kind of friends who, when you see them again for the first time in a while, make it seem like no time has passed at all. As I was in the midst of reading Ulysses, I was also nearing the end of my time in college. We were all silently, mentally preparing to move on to different cities and different places after graduation. It's the kind of thing that you don't like to talk about, but you all know is there. The impending reality of something about to come to an end. Living under that kind of knowledge is something that makes you do your best to take every opportunity to make the most of the time you have left together. One of my best memories from the winter of 2021 happened in the middle of reading the second episode of Ulysses, Nestor. I had to pause my reading to trek outside with my friends to enjoy an evening time Boston snowstorm. At the time, we realized that this snowstorm may well have been one of the last ones of our college days. We couldn't just watch it from our windows. Walking out into the snowfall alongside my closest friends, it's hard to imagine any memory being more quintessential of the so-called college experience. It's the kind of memory I very happily carry with me. As I threw snowballs, built snowmen, and caught snowflakes on my tongue, cheesy, I know, I couldn't get Stephen Dedalus, Mr. DC, and Buck Mulligan out of my head. I couldn't help but to consider the juxtaposition between my experience with my friends in the snow and Stephen's experience teaching at the school. He's unhappy with his current position in life. He has a feeling that there's something more out there that he's meant for. But what about me? I'm happy here, surrounded by people that I love. What lies ahead when I'm thrust away from that comfort? Perhaps Stephen and I both stand upon the precipice of change. Myself an inevitable period of transition, Stephen a necessary search for self-discovery and meaning. Maybe we're approaching change from a different perspective, but bound together by a similar destination. While teaching his class, Stephen ponders the absoluteness of history. What if these historical events had never happened? Certainly the world would be a different place. We are defined by the past, informed by our ancestors, and shaped by our memories. Where would Stephen be if he had made different choices? Where would he be if his mother had not died? Where would I be if I had not met my friends? I prefer not to think about that. It's hard enough to live in the moment as it is. At this point, I was still too timid to lean into telling a single story in each episode, and I was trying to weave in too much plot summary. Looking back at these early episodes, it's fun to see how much my understanding of my project and of the book grew as the semester progressed. In my Proteus episode, in true Jesuit fashion, I ponder the theme of taking reflective walks. Here's my episode recorded after reading Proteus. Proteus, the legendary chapter that separates the casual reader from the serious one. It was the most challenged I had been by a piece of literature in a long time. Looking back on it now, I'm glad I pushed myself through. It was worth it. Now, before I dive in and come across like I'm comparing myself to Stephen Dedalus himself, 
let me get one thing straight. My inner thoughts are not nearly as nuanced or as intelligent as Stephen's. I do, however, feel connected to his experience in this episode. When I first realized that this was a chapter entirely contained within Stephen's head during a walk on the beach, I was fascinated. You see, 2020 and 2021 was a period in my life where I was walking a lot. And I mean a lot. Especially during the warmer months, taking long walks was one of the things I learned to look forward to most. Sometimes alone with my thoughts, sometimes accompanied by music, a podcast, or a friend on the phone, walks became a piece of calm amid such calamity. I considered myself somewhat of a pro when it came to the idea of going for an introspective walk around the neighborhood. I'm happy to report now that years later, I'm in a better emotional state, one that doesn't require quite as many long, solitary walks. Stephen takes the reader through so many memories, insecurities, and different corners of his mind that, to say the least, this chapter can be difficult to track. It's hard to tell what's going on. The confusing style does an impeccable job of mimicking what goes on inside our own heads. It's a mimetic reflection of a real-life inner monologue. As I look back on the lessons learned from this book and throughout my life since reading, that theme keeps coming back to me. Mimesis. Reflection of life. Not only within art, but within ourselves. Just as Joyce mimics the fragmented nature of an inner monologue in his writing, Stephen mimics the voices of people in his memories. He mimics the rhythm of poems in his head with his footsteps. This chapter is entirely made up of Stephen's interaction with his own memories. How he interacts with and reflects on these memories defines who he is. Such is the same in our own lives. One line that stuck with me above others from this chapter came when Stephen was trying his best to remember a dream. I am almosting it. I have a distinct and clear memory of a night of fretful sleep I had not long after reading Proteus for the first time. I woke up a number of times during the night amid various stages of dreams. As dreams tend to do, though, the details kept escaping me each time I woke up. Laying in the dark room, I remember repeating that simple phrase again and again. I felt like Stephen, caught in a haze, doing my best to remember the details of a dream gone by. I woke up the next morning, and I have to admit I was a little bit excited. This is the first time I can remember actually recognizing Ulysses finding its way into my subconscious. I often come back to that phrase when trying to remember a dream or a distant memory. It's not something I use in conversation or even say out loud. It just pops into my head like it was something funny an old friend once told me. Maybe someday I'll find a better way of figuring out the connection between our memories and ourselves. All I can say for now is that something deep within us yearns to relive or at least reflect our past experiences. Joyce knew that. I think Stephen does too. For now, I think I'm only almosting it. The fourth chapter marks the beginning of my second upload, after I had a few more weeks of the class under my belt. In the next few chapters, I tried to be a little more intentional about finding a specific memory to ponder. In Calypso, I talk about the topic of remembering shared trauma with another person. Here's my episode, recorded after reading Calypso. Leopold Bloom, Mr. Leo Bloom, emasculated, misunderstood. Calypso gives us our first look into Bloom's mind, revealing deep trauma and anxiety through the mundanity of his morning routine. Looking back on this book now, this first introduction to Mr. Bloom has stuck with me.
I think I've come to understand him more and more as I've grown older myself. Some part of me will always want to be like the introspective, eclectic, and angsty Stephen. But eventually, you grow up. Life itself becomes more mundane. And if you choose, you have to figure out how to share it with someone else. I, for one, can appreciate that mundanity. I am, to this day, and have been throughout my entire life, a routine-based person, particularly in the morning. Starting off the day by getting a few tasks out of the way is always refreshing. And although I don't typically eat kidney for breakfast, I feel connected to Bloom in that way. Amid Bloom's morning, we get glimpses of his troubles. He spends time tending to his still-sleeping wife, who he knows is going to be unfaithful to him later that afternoon. Though he might come across as somewhat uncomplex, operating with such distressing knowledge must take some remarkable emotional fortitude. And we can see Bloom trying to keep that same sense of fortitude throughout this chapter. Perhaps that's why it focuses on his morning routine. He's trying his best to refocus himself on these small tasks in order to forget about Blaze's Boylan, the looming elephant, and his and his wife's mind. But Bloom and Molly's story is much more complicated than it might seem. We learn that they lost their infant son 11 years before. Going through such a terrible experience together has undoubtedly and irreparably changed Poli and Molly's relationship. Though most of us are lucky enough not to have experienced the terrible anguish of losing a child, I'd struggle to find someone who hasn't shared some sort of trauma alongside another. Though trauma can feel isolating, it's rarely experienced in a vacuum. Sometimes a single event can change the relationships that it leaves behind and that we share with those around us forever. I'd venture a guess that as I've been describing this kind of trauma experience, most of you out there can already think of a time when you felt something similar. When something so serious, so messed up, so unfair, or so shocking happens that you never see the people that you experienced it with the same way again. At first, maybe seeing them reminds you of that terrible event. Maybe after a while, the memory starts to fade. But it doesn't go away. It becomes an unspoken undertone that dictates your relationship with that person. And if it's something as serious as losing a young child, it can be difficult or even impossible to reconcile. I think this is what happened to Leopold and Molly. They still love each other, but this terrible event that happened to them, together, has been slowly driving a wedge between them for 11 years. The memory doesn't fade. It's still there, every day. I hope to never go through something as awful as Bloom and Molly did. But although my hardships haven't caused the same grief as the death of their son, I have had experiences that drove me slowly away from someone I love. In most cases, neither person does anything particularly wrong, but the memory can become too much to overcome. Sometimes it's easier to try your hardest to push the memories out of your head, to fill your thoughts and your time with other things so the difficult parts don't well up too often. Trauma is hard. Living afterwards is harder. In this next episode, I'll talk about memories of going to church as a young child. Here, I'm trying, and mostly failing, to play off of some of Joyce's humor in his description of Bloom seeing the church in this chapter. Here's my episode recorded after reading Lotus Eaters. I have so many distinct memories of my childhood trying my hardest to sit still during hour-long masses. My family was Catholic. I would attend Sunday school each week, which was always followed by Sunday Mass. And let me tell you, our priest wasn't afraid to venture beyond the one-hour mark. 
Luckily for a child, there are lots of interesting sights, smells, and surfaces to distract you when you're in a church. The soft glow of stained glass windows, the pained faces of the figures depicted in the Stations of the Cross, the cold, hard wood of the pew underneath you, even the wafting smell of the over-perfumed and the over-enthusiastic elderly woman who happens to be sitting directly in front of you. There's a lot to experience while in a church. I can't say I enjoyed it much. In fact, much of my time in church as a kid was spent thinking about the allures of what awaited me outside of that building. But still, I must say that my time inside that space has left a profound impression. I'm no longer the disinterested child bored by a sermon, but like that child, I'm still no stranger to the allure of that which is not allowed. I remember laughing when reading Bloom's descriptions of the inside of a church during Lotus Eaters. His confusion of the letters above Jesus' head on the cross, INRI is at the same time laughable and relatable. Iron nails ran in. That they did. That they did, Mr. Bloom. Being inside a church can have an odd effect on a person, even if they're not a religious type. The stiffness in the air is palpable, and it's likely to make even the most fervent non-believer think of themselves in some sort of religious context. Even though I never felt particularly drawn in by the allure of Catholicism, at least not any more than the other average raised Catholic but eventually stopped going to church kind of kid, something about participating isn't enticing. Perhaps it has to do with the prospect of having a set of rules which you can fantasize about breaking. Sitting in church, listening to the priest talking about being a good person, living a good life, there's something oddly enjoyable about thinking about all of the disallowed things that you could do. Now, will you ever actually do them? Of course not. You're a good person. I think Bloom goes through something like this. He's not Catholic, but still, that cold smell of sacred stone calls him in. He enjoys pondering the unsavory, sinful temptations available to him, but rarely acts upon his thoughts. And he can't help but to reflect something of the religiosity into his own life. He finishes the chapter by thinking about going to take a pleasurable bath, envisioning lowering himself into the water. This is my body. He reflects the words of Jesus into his own life. I'd venture to guess that there are a lot of reasons people decide to go into churches, Very few of them must have to do with the religion itself. The main event of the next chapter, Hades, triggered my memory for this one, the thought of attending a funeral. I was interested in the ways that events can conjure up memories that we don't expect. I found it really funny and really enlightening to be inside Bloom's head at an event as solemn as a funeral. Here's my episode recorded after reading Hades. The first funeral I ever attended was for my grandmother. I don't remember much. I was pretty young. I do remember an older relative pulling me aside and gently preparing me for what it was going to be like to see a dead body during the wake. Luckily, I've only had to attend a handful of funerals in my life, but every time the feelings they bring up have been the same. It's difficult to feel comfortable at a funeral. In a place filled with such grief, any stray daydream feels blasphemous and disrespectful. At the same time, however, the odd setting of a funeral causes some deep part of my brain to wander. Being at a funeral is when I feel most acutely aware of my own daydreams or memories that just happen to pop into my head. The odd circumstances happening outside of my head provide an odd context for what is going on within. I'm guessing that going to a funeral is a little more familiar for Leopold Bloom than it is for me. 
Still, the setting of Hades provides some odd context for all that goes on during the chapter. The seemingly everyday conversation, like the jokes, the making fun of Bloom, the discussion of politics, all feels to me like it shouldn't have a place in the midst of a funeral procession. When I was reading it for the first time, it gave me a sense of unease, kind of like being at a funeral. How do memories actually show themselves in our lives in the present? One way that I think is particularly recognizable in this chapter, and in my own experience of attending funerals, is through the daydreams that are brought on by the world around us. Being at a funeral makes Bloom daydream about what will happen when he dies, and it makes him remember the death that has happened around him in his life, particularly the death of his father. Is it possible for us to control the daydreams we have? Some might be quick to say yes. Of course we can control what we think about. But I think the story is a little more complicated. We can't always decide when our past decides to interact with our present. That's never more evident than when you're at a funeral. Sometimes being at a funeral is a mental gymnastics that combines grief for the lost and shame for allowing yourself to think of anything other than paying your respect to the person passed on. The environment around us provokes reactions within our minds that we cannot always control. Those reactions often show up in the form of daydreams, informed by memories unwittingly and unwillingly brought to the surface of our minds. Our interactions with those memories, sometimes pleasant and sometimes difficult, is a sign of being alive, I think. It can be annoying or sometimes sorrowful, but it reminds us of our uniquely human ability to be moved by that which is in the past. Maybe Bloom was right when he said that being in the midst of death we are in life. In Aeolus, I made a valiant effort to mimic Joyce's chosen style using newspaper headlines. This is where I see the mimesis, or reflection, part of my podcast coming into play when I mimic style or specific lines from the book. In this chapter, I base my podcast on the style of Joyce's writing, talking about my memories of first arriving in a new place, college. Here's my episode recorded after reading Aeolus. Arriving in a new place. Coming to college for the first time is a truly singular experience. I distinctly remember arriving at Boston College in August of 2017, a wide-eyed and eager freshman, ready to make this place my new home. In those first few weeks of school, I didn't glimpse much of what would become a true home, one where I would go on to meet lifelong friends. Those first few weeks were more of a whirlwind of new people, new emotions, and new things to worry about. Where are you from? Where do you live? Most of the conversations you have during those first few weeks of college mean absolutely, positively nothing. They're awkward 30 to 90 second bouts of dialogue in which you and a potential new friend cover topics such as where you grew up, what building you live in, what you're thinking about studying. Some people like to talk themselves up in hopes of making as many new acquaintances as possible. They're just blowing hot air. These people come into your life, and just as quickly as they've arrived, they're gone. Usually, never to be spoken to again. Perhaps you'll share a cordial nod when you pass them by on campus, but even that typically fades away within a couple weeks. Time to make a decision. Decisions, decisions. People often talk about the freedom that comes with going to college, but that also means choices. What are you going to study? Who will your friends be? What are you going to do this weekend? Who are you going to be? What are you going to be? Going to college for the first time is an inflection point unlike any other. 
It's an opportunity to set yourself on a new path. I remember trying to put that stress aside and doing my best to enjoy myself. Essay due, Thursday. Adjusting to college life can feel like you're running around all the time. Balancing new friends, new classes, all while living in a new place can make a person feel like they're being pulled in every direction imaginable. And doing so while living under a subconscious, nagging worry about finding a home and fitting in, days can feel overwhelming. A meeting here, a homework assignment there, a dinner with a friend here, a favor for another over there. For all the free time they tell you you'll have in college, it can add up to be quite a hectic schedule. Sometimes it feels like you need to slow down and take a breath. Pleasing everyone. Reading Aeolus for the first time in an odd way reminded me of that time in my life. So many characters go in and out and in and out of Bloom's day. He's working hard to do his job and keep everyone happy. Doing all of these small tasks while operating under the profound sadness that must come with his knowledge of his wife's impending indiscretion seems to me to be no small feat. Future Nostalgia I entered college with no knowledge of what was to come. I didn't know who I'd meet or who I'd end up with or who I'd end up being. But I did know that I wanted to remember those days well. It's tough not to get caught up in the menial, but who knows? Maybe you'll be looking back on today with nostalgia from the future. Boston is windier than I thought. I would often get excited every time a location that I have been to in real life showed up in the book. Hoth Head was one of those places. My friends who were in Dublin with me and I found it hilarious that this beautiful cliffwalk trail where we took pictures was the site of that sexual scene from Ulysses. In this more sad chapter reflection, I tried to look back on a previous version of myself. Here's my episode recorded after reading Lestergonians. I, like Bloom, have had some great experiences at Hoth Head. And don't get the wrong idea. Mine were not sexual, like Bloom's memory with Molly. But they were memorable all the same. Every time I return to this chapter, I can't help but to think back on when I walked the path at Hoth alongside my friends. During the few months I stayed in Dublin during college, we actually went up to Hoth a couple times. I can look back at the photos, myself smiling wide at the camera, clutching to my friends and standing against the stiff sea breeze, a beautiful view of the cliffs and the Irish Sea in the background behind us. Looking back on these photos is like looking back on a previous version of myself. I suppose that's the case when you look at any picture from the past. After all, pictures capture a moment in time that can never be recreated. But when I look back at these photos, it feels like something more. I can see a part of myself in those pictures that I can no longer see when I look in the mirror. Happy memories can be sad, too. Perhaps that's a depressing thought. Why, when I look back on a picture of a time so happy in my life, can I not feel some sliver of that same happiness? It reminds me too much of a time gone by, a time that I'll never get back. And like any other memories, it often comes back into my mind when I least expect it. Don't get me wrong, I'm so grateful that these memories happened, that I lived through them, and they do make me happy in many ways, but not all the time. When Bloom is thinking about his memory of that afternoon spent with Molly on Hoth Head, he's not only looking back on a nostalgic time gone by, but on a part of his life that he has lost and can never get back. The memory is so distinct that he can recall the sensations of that moment, how it felt to hold his wife, something that we know he probably hasn't done in 11 years. Such an old memory, yet so vivid in his mind. 
Like any time he thinks about when his marriage was stable, maybe thinking of this moment at Hoth makes Bloom think about his son. Why wouldn't it? After all, if he and Molly hadn't gone through the tragedy of losing their son, who's to say they wouldn't still be going out to Hoth for afternoon picnics? The one event that changed everything also changed the way Bloom looks back on his life before it happened. I look back on those photos of myself and see an outgoing young man living an exciting life day by day. Even though it's only been five or six years since that was taken, I feel as though I've aged decades. I look at me then, and at me now. This is the shift from upload three to upload four, when I leaned even further into the telling a specific story idea. I wanted to push myself further out of my comfort zone. I think that my connections with the book became somewhat less clear in these episodes, but I don't regret leaning further into the abstract, creative side of the podcast. In this next chapter, I went off of the Shakespearean theme to talk about my own experiences. Here's my episode recorded after reading Scylla and Charybdis. I first attempted to read Shakespeare when I was in high school. I don't think that it went so well. Sure, I understood what was happening in Romeo and Juliet, but I don't think I really got it. I followed along in class, read the online summaries, but still felt like I wasn't living up to what the text demanded. I struggled to hear iambic pentameter and to identify the many illusions. The pressure I felt to not only comprehend, but enjoy and understand this new type of literature was not helped by the fact that my father had a complete set of Shakespeare's works on an antique bookshelf in our home. He wasn't pretentious or snobby about literature. He was always excited to talk with me about it. Still, having a dad with a master's degree in creative writing and an extensive knowledge of literature made me really want to live up to his level of knowledge. Sometimes it felt like those blue-bound books were taunting me from their place perched upon that shelf. Antique books on an antique shelf representing, at least to me, antique literature. In my head, my struggles to fully understand the text were at my own fault. I became hesitant to speak out during class time for fears of coming across as dumb, and whenever a classmate made a point, it always seemed to me to be much smarter than anything I could ever come up with. Suffice to say, some of the same feelings came up when I read Ulysses. Though I was a few years older, maybe a bit smarter, it was often frustrating, and to be honest, Scylla and Charybdis was one of those frustrating chapters. Maybe that was a product of my less-than-comprehensive knowledge of Shakespeare from high school. Maybe it was just part of the process of reading Ulysses. Either way, just as I was proud of myself for working hard to understand Shakespeare during high school, I'm proud of myself for sticking with Ulysses and putting in some extra effort to get through the more difficult chapters. Reading Ulysses in my last year of college prepared me to face some of the challenges that I've since found out that the real world presents. Now, whenever I'm intimidated by the prowess of a coworker at my job, I remember that the gap between our knowledge might widen in my head. Some people tend to put your ideas down just to make themselves seem smarter. We all have good ideas and bad ideas. In a way, struggling with Ulysses has made me more confident in facing other uncertainties and moments of self-doubt. I originally planned to return to discussing my experiences walking across Dublin for Wandering Rocks, but decided to challenge myself to write a story that happened in the future. I focused on something realistic. I will be living in Boston after graduation. I tried to play off the schema theme of mechanics for this episode, arguing that everyone in a city is an important part of a machine that makes up a whole. Here's my episode recorded after reading Wandering Rocks. I take the bus to work every morning and back home in the afternoon. 
I live in a pretty picturesque neighborhood in South Boston that's filled with mostly recent college graduates. It's a neighborhood full of unique, colorful, three-story apartment buildings, and it's only a few blocks away from the beach. It's also less than a mile from Boston's infamous Methadone Mile, a center of illegal drug use and recovery in the city. My morning commute on the bus also takes me past a homeless shelter. I used to volunteer there when I was in college. Now it makes me sad every time I see it. On any given day, I see the gentrifying South Boston, the glitzy and modern seaport, the tourist-filled North End. I see men in suits rushing to work and homeless people struggling to survive against the harsh winds of a New England winter. And it's all so easy to ignore. It's just so easy to worry about the problems in my life. But when I make the bold decision to remove my headphones and take a look around me, it's all so easy to feel quite small. I'm only one tiny part of the huge moving machine that makes up this city. It's not a machine that runs on mechanics or technology, but upon the stories and lives of each individual who lives within it. Usually my morning commutes are filled with podcasts and anxiety about what's to come, but sometimes I remember wandering rocks. It's a chapter that shows us small bits of so many different stories happening all around Dublin. And to me, it reminds me that a city is nothing more than the amalgamation of the storylines of each person who lives there. Nobody's story is more important to the overall function of the city than any other. When I take the time to look around me in the city, it makes me think about myself. Was I a better person back then when I volunteered at that homeless shelter? Have I become selfish, forgetting to give back to the community around me? Or was I volunteering at that place out of selfish motives in the first place? To be honest, I have never really come to a good answer for these kinds of questions. Sometimes, like Bloom, it becomes easier to suppress thinking about the difficult things. Reading Ulysses back when I was in school has made me think harder about how I exist within the context of my community today. But it also makes me wonder if just thinking about it is enough. Maybe we are all just small parts of the same big machine. But that doesn't mean that we're insignificant. I was excited about reading Sirens. The whole idea of the musicality was really cool. My episode on this chapter finds its connection to the book more in terms of the form instead of content, different than most of my other episodes. I discussed the art of listening and reading for rhythm while remembering a distinctive and formative memory of a specific piece of music. I originally intended to include a short clip of that song, but Anchor FM would not let me publish the episode with a clip of the song, so it's been omitted. Here's my episode recorded after reading Sirens. I love listening for rhythms, and not just in music. When I'm listening to someone give a presentation, or a politician making a speech, or a DJ on the radio, I love to try and hear the subtle rhythm and flow of their voice. I think that was instilled in me from reading Sirens. I remember more about the musical, rhythmic nature of that chapter than anything about the content itself. Subconsciously, good rhythm is so pleasing to listen to. It keeps us more engaged. It can remind us of music, whether we realize it or not. And as someone who enjoys public speaking, I think the lessons learned about rhythm from this chapter have made me a better writer and speaker. Reading this chapter reminded me of when I first listened to Steve Reich's Music for 18 Musicians. Just like Sirens was written in a musical style unlike anything else I'd ever heard, this piece is composed unlike any other piece of music that I had ever heard. It's nearly an hour long and full of repetitive patterns and rhythms. Although it lacks words or any semblance of a memorable melody, the music gets under your skin. It can put you in a kind of trance, just like the sirens. I first listened to this piece of music as part of a class during college. Our teacher had us listen to the piece in its entirety during class, 
The hour passed by in what felt to me like 25 or 30 minutes. Music for 18 Musicians and Sirens are two examples of a revolutionary use of rhythm in art. Years after I heard the piece and after I first read that chapter, I can't say that I specifically think about either one of them on a regular basis. But when I take a step back and ponder the way I specifically listen for rhythm in my everyday life, I think it's kind of obvious that both have managed to work their way into my subconscious. It makes me wonder about what Joyce ultimately wanted us to take away from reading Ulysses. It doesn't have a particularly compelling narrative structure that has stuck with me years after reading. But the style and form, those are the kinds of things you don't forget. They change the lens through which you look back on your own life and the perspective by which you view the rest of the world. In Cyclops, the citizens' hateful nationalism reminded me of that own theme in the United States. Going with the perspective from the future, I tried to envision what our country's collective memory of the years of Trump would look like. It's a tired topic, I know, but still a necessary one. Here's my episode, recorded after reading Cyclops. It's been more than half a decade since Donald Trump was in office as president. And as much as we all collectively try our hardest to forget about the four years he spent there, it's a memory that will never go away. Trump was a realization of what most of us try so hard to ignore about our society, that under the surface, there's an ever-present underbelly of nationalism, racism, and xenophobia just waiting to lash out. People like me, who are in positions of privilege where I don't get attacked based on my identity in this country, are usually and unfortunately inclined to turn a blind eye towards that kind of hatred. It's the easy way out. But refusing to see it doesn't mean that it's not there. In the last few years, we've come a long way. We no longer have to worry about having a leader who promotes hatred, and our government has started to implement some somewhat effective policies once again. However, the hatred that Trump embodied has not been expelled, however much we would like to think so. So how do we push back against hateful nationalism? Well, we first have to recognize that it's still a problem. Just because Joe Biden has been president does not mean that the efforts to achieve justice are over. Step one in solving the problem is recognizing that it exists. That's exactly what Bloom shows us in the Cyclops chapter. It's a chapter filled with hate directed towards our main character, coming from an Irish nationalist. Just because someone wants freedom and autonomy for their nation does not mean that they feel that all people are equally deserving of those same rights. Bloom does a good job of standing up for himself in this chapter, given the circumstances. But reading it makes me realize that it cannot be, just be the responsibility of the persecuted to fight back against their persecution. These men do not accept Bloom as truly Irish, even though he's lived his whole life there. There are Americans who do not see people who are different from them as truly Americans. Just because I'm lucky enough to not be the target of that kind of hatred does not mean that I have a past to stand by and let it happen. Although many would be quick to characterize Bloom as passive throughout this book, I think that what this chapter has taught me more than anything is that when it comes to matters of standing up against hatred, we have a responsibility not to be passive. Although many of us, including myself, want to compartmentalize Trump's years as president as a distant, faraway memory, we can't let that memory fade, as painful as it is. It informs me and reminds me that our country still has a whole lot of growing to do before people are treated equally. Memories give us empathy, and empathy should give us action to make our communities a better and more welcoming place. Nausicaa was the chapter where I really, really tried to lean into the idea of telling a dramatic story that has never happened to me. 
The connection to the book is there, I believe, but you have to read between the lines. This chapter and the ones that follow are really just about telling stories that came up in my mind while reading in the form of memories. Here's my episode recorded after reading Nausicaa. It was the 4th of July, 2022, and it was the worst 4th of July I've ever had. And that's saying something, because I've had a pretty bad streak of 4th of Julys. Dating back to my high school years, it's always been one of my least favorite holidays. In high school, America's birthday was always filled with stress for me because it was the day that everyone from my town gathered on the beach to watch the fireworks. I always went into it more worried about trying to fit in with the cool group of kids there rather than watching the fireworks themselves. But this year was supposed to be different. I wasn't in high school or college anymore. I was more mature now. I was ready to sit back, relax, and enjoy the holiday for real. But there was one catch. My relationship with my girlfriend was falling apart. It didn't just start happening on that day. It had been a slow buildup for a month or two. You know, the classic kind of thing, a breakdown in communication, some nasty words said by both sides here and there, but never enough for us to actually officially end things. But I think we both knew that it was heading in that direction. We were back in my hometown for a long weekend off work. Alongside my family, we decided to go to those very same fireworks at the local beach. Turns out it's actually pretty difficult to enjoy overt displays of patriotism and cheap barbecue food when your relationship of three years is about to come to an end. My girlfriend and I, well, we did our best to avoid talking about it, especially around my family. We didn't want to let on that anything was wrong. When the fireworks started, though, we found ourselves away from the crowd, Standing a few hundred feet away from the packed beach, we watched the colorful fireworks from under the shadow of large, solemn trees, the smoke from the display drifting through their branches. The fireworks made it difficult to say anything to one another without being interrupted by a large boom, that is. But it was okay. After three years of being together, one look into each other's eyes was more than enough to let on what we both knew to be true. She began to walk away, wordlessly, back towards the crowd. And I was left alone there, amid the pungent firework smoke and the distant cheers of happy citizens. I closed my eyes, and amid the calamity and sadness, felt a kind of sorrowful peace. If Leopold Bloom has taught me anything, it's the ability to keep on living, each day, each moment at a time, amid the circumstances of heartbreak. In these next few episodes, I did my best to stay away from any kind of analysis of what was going on, Partly because I felt it made for a more interesting podcast, and partly because, well, most of the time I myself had very little of an idea what was going on. Some of these last few episodes deal with a little bit darker themes, including this next one, in which I envision myself becoming an alcoholic. Don't worry, it's not real. Here's my episode recorded after reading Oxen of the Sun. I hit my rock bottom two years ago next Thursday. It took a lot for me to get there. Anyone else who is a recovering alcoholic would be able to understand. But making the decision to stop drinking was the hardest thing I've done in my life. But I got to a point where I no longer had an option. I guess you could say that entering into the real world after college was not an easy transition for me. I had not been that heavy of a drinker when I was in school. Not any more than most of my friends, anyway. But once we had left the lawlessness of university life, instead of giving up the drinking and partying habits... I foolishly fell into a spiral in which I leaned further into them. I was drinking every night after work, 
and increasingly more each time. Felt like I had a string of bad luck going on in my life, including a particularly difficult breakup with a girlfriend I had been dating since back in college on the 4th of July, no less. She said she was tired of me either being drunk or hungover all the time. She said that was no way to live my life. As you might be able to guess, I didn't listen to her. I once again made the choice to lean further in, and things just kept getting worse and worse. I lost a lot when I was drinking. Friends, roommates, dignity. I was stuck in a downward spiral. In my sober moments, I would be filled with such a painfully strong sense of existential dread. Deep inside, I realized and I knew that I was throwing my life away. They don't tell you that about being an alcoholic. That the most painful moments don't come when you're drunk, but when you're not. I don't want to go into the details of that night that I hit rock bottom. It's not something I'll ever forget, but it's also not particularly pleasant to remember. The most important thing to say from that night is that someone reached out to me and quite literally saved my life. They saved me from myself. Despite all the friends I had pushed away from me, I had one who was still there. And thankfully, that friend pulled me out of the metaphorical storm and got me the help that I needed to get back on my feet. I regained my faith in humanity, my own and that of other people following that night, thanks to that person. Looking back on Ulysses, I see that kind of humanity in Oxen of the Sun, especially in Bloom. He goes to the hospital to check in on Mrs. Purefoy, and he ends up helping out Stephen instead. Though Stephen probably isn't an alcoholic and isn't at the same kind of rock bottom that I was that night, he's clearly in need of a helping hand. Reading about a bunch of drunken idiots reminds me of my time as one of their own, but luckily reading this chapter didn't make me particularly interested in rejoining their ranks. Oxen of the Sun is where I really started to feel connected to the relationship between Bloom and Stephen. Though there's a distance between them, Bloom feels concerned by the end of the episode and offers a proverbial helping hand to Stephen by helping him through the night in the following episodes. Nowadays, I find my purpose in showing similar acts of humanity and kindness for other people. If Bloom can do it at the end of such a harrowing journey through his quite ordinary day, then what's stopping me? For this episode, I latched onto the scene in the book chapter in which Bloom's subconscious imagines him as a successful politician giving a speech. That's something I identified with, and sometimes something I daydream about, to be honest. I wrote a speech for myself as an example of how my subconscious might be a little bit, just a little bit, like Bloom's. Here's my episode recorded after reading the crazy chapter, Circe. My friends, thank you for being here with me tonight at our campaign's fundraising gala. It's an honor to be standing here in front of you all as your chosen candidate on the ballot this year. It's a privilege and an honor and a responsibility that I do not take lightly, let me tell you. I owe all of you a great debt of gratitude for trusting me with your vote, and I'll do my best to repay that debt once I'm in office. Ladies and gentlemen, our country is in need of some major changes, and I intend to speak to you about just a few of those changes here tonight. Firstly, we're in dire need of a high-speed national railway system. Transportation in this country is woefully outdated and needs to be updated to modern times. Think of the ways that affordable, high-speed, transcontinental travel would help our economy. We also need to learn how to care for one another. Individualism has gone much too far in this country. I see this as being most prevalent in our healthcare system. 
Who here among us has worried about finding health insurance or worried about whether they would be able to afford a necessary health procedure? That's right. Raise your hands up high. Exactly what I thought. Our healthcare system is broken. All of us who are old enough to share a collective memory of the way that the COVID-19 pandemic wrecked our system of healthcare delivery in this country, we can't afford to go through something like that again. We need to stop paying so much money to these pharmaceutical and insurance companies who don't have our best interests at heart. Believe me, folks, I'm with you. Once I'm in office, I vow to do all that I can to enact a healthcare system that works for everyone not just the rich CEOs and insurance company executives. Now, everyone, thank you so much for coming here once again. If you believe in my message here tonight and want to hear more, head to patrickforamerica.com. There you'll find more information on my team's platform, as well as an opportunity to donate. Folks, I'd be so humbled if you could spare any donation. We're always in need of more money to spread the word about the good things we'll do once we're in office. Thank you all. And vote Patrick this coming November. That's how I'd imagine one of my political speeches going. Perhaps it's something deep in my subconscious, but it's frighteningly easy for me to envision things like that. Maybe it comes from some deep need for gratification from other people. When I daydream about things like giving a political speech, I think of the chapter Circe from Ulysses. Getting a front row ticket into the subconscious of both Bloom and Stephen has made me more cognizant of the ways in which my subconscious desires might inform my real-life decisions. I never expected that getting such an intimate view into the mind of someone else would make me realize so much more about what's going on inside of my own. And who knows? Maybe someday I will run for office. I sure hope you'll vote for me. Eumaeus, to be honest, was not one of my favorite chapters from the book. I felt like it slowed down my momentum. I still read the chapter, but it took me a couple sittings to get through. Similarly, my podcast episode about this chapter isn't my favorite of the bunch, but I can still appreciate its role as part of the whole. In this one, I envision memories in a different form, when they're used for storytelling to get to know someone new. Here's my episode recorded after reading Eumaeus. It can be really fun to recount our memories to other people in the form of storytelling. I've spent many a late night retelling old memories with friends, reminiscing about our past. But it's a different story when you're talking about a memory that isn't shared with the people around you. Then, storytelling takes on a different purpose. It can help us to get to know one another. I can also think of more than a few times when I told a story about myself, while exaggerating a few details, to try and paint myself in a better light for the other person. After I moved away from all of my roommates and out of my comfort zone after college, I was desperate to find friends and acquaintances however I could. You can imagine my excitement when I was invited to go out to some bars with a few casual acquaintances from my work. Well, long story short, we had a good night on the town and ended up at a small diner late for some late night food and coffee. By that point, however, I had kind of realized that these guys I was hanging out with were not really my type of friends. They were different from my friends from college. Still, I was desperate to leave a good impression on them. I remember sitting at that diner late at night, completely spewing some story about the time I went to Oktoberfest in Germany when I studied abroad in Europe. At the time, I probably thought it would make me come across as cool, as someone who would fit in with these guys. Perhaps it was a drunken stupor that led me to such a conclusion. Looking back on that late night conversation... It's clear now that I was doing most, or maybe all, of the talking. Those guys didn't care about what I had to say. 
In fact, I probably rambled on with that story for minutes while they sat there, drunk, barely listening. Looking back over the Eumaeus chapter of Ulysses, I see some of the same themes. People like to tell stories about themselves to make them look good, especially late at night when half the crowd is drunk and perhaps more easily impressed. We hear lots of stories intended to impress during Eumaeus. At some level in this chapter, I felt like I recognized Bloom doing this with Stephen. Some part of Bloom wants Stephen to be impressed with him, to like him. I can certainly relate to that. What I've learned since that night, though, and partially from Bloom himself, is that it's not worth it to, to pretend to be someone I'm not. Those friends will come easier if I present who I really am. I think I found my rhythm again with Ithaca. I really liked watching the relationship between Bloom and Stephen develop, and my romantic, sappy side certainly comes out in my analysis of that relationship. In this next episode, I talk about helping a friend in need. I guess I'm always one to go for the sappy ending. Here's my episode recorded after reading Ithaca. It's never easy to see a friend going through a hard time. One of my best friends was going through one of the hardest times of his life about a year or so back. I knew that he was going through a rough patch, but I don't think I realized how bad it was until I started getting really concerned about his own safety. He'd make comments here and there about how he felt empty and broken, and to be honest, it started to frighten me. It all came to a head late one night when he called me on the phone. He never calls me out of the blue, always sending a text first, so I knew something was up before I even answered the phone. When I picked up, he was on the other end of the line in tears. All he could manage to say was asking if I could come over to his house to be with him. Of course, I immediately dropped what I was doing to make the short drive over to his place. I found him sitting, slumped over his kitchen table, crying. Wordlessly, I walked over to pull him into an embrace. He lived alone, so I was glad that he had called me. Who knows what would have happened had he not had the strength to pick up the phone on that night. We didn't talk for a while after I got there. We hugged each other and then simply sat together in silence. It was a powerful silence. After a little bit, we both decided we could use some fresh air. We clambered out of his second floor bedroom window onto a small flat patch of the roof of his building. It was a comfortable, peaceful place, especially that late at night. We sat there, sharing a cigarette, even though I don't smoke. We reminisced about good memories that we had shared. We didn't talk about why he was feeling depressed or what had made him call me that night. The most important thing at that moment was to sit there in each other's company. Sharing a cigarette and a memory, we gazed up at the cloudless night sky. I never knew the stars could be so visible from Boston. My favorite part of Ithaca is seeing the culmination of the relationship between Bloom and Stephen. I remember that finally, when reading this chapter for the first time, I could see that Bloom was a character in search of a son and Stephen in search of a father. But I think that beyond that, they were both simply in search of a connection, a relationship with another person. Sometimes it's the odd, late at night, under the stars moments that make a relationship. Sharing a cigarette or sharing a pee, it's in those vulnerable midnight moments that we truly get to know one another. I've come a long way with this podcast. For my last episode, I decided to lean all the way into my romantic side and envision what it would be like if I got married. 
I tried to relate this episode back to my reading of Molly's relationship with Leopold. Here's my episode about marriage, recorded after reading Penelope. The day I got married was the happiest day of my life. It's a cliche, but it's true. But sometimes I can't help but wondering, are we still stuck in that honeymoon phase of our relationship? What happens when that starts to die out? I I really don't think that it will. Maybe every couple who gets married says this about themselves, but I truly think that my wife and I are soulmates. The day I proposed to her was the most nervous day of my life. That is, until our wedding day. It's a weird experience, getting married. It makes a person do a lot of thinking. I didn't have any second doubts about going through with it, not at all. But it did make me think back on the people I'd been with before and the person I was back then. I know that I'd grown a lot since I was in my other relationships, but was it enough? Was I enough of the person I want to be to commit myself to one person forever? I remember sitting in a small classroom attached to the church where we got married just a few minutes before the wedding. My hands were clammy and my fitted tuxedo suddenly started to feel much too tight. Now, I wasn't doubting the strength of my relationship or whether I really wanted to get married. I was doubting myself. Could I really live up to the promises I wanted to make? It's a funny thing to be alone right before you get married. In some symbolic way, it felt like I was sitting alone for the last time in my life. My nerves were quelled when my best man walked into the room and sat down next to me. He'd gotten married a year or so before, so he knew the deal. He sat down with me and said, you're ready. I knew I was. Maybe I just needed to hear it said out loud. Your best memories happen when you're with somebody else. It seems paradoxical to look to Molly and Leopold's relationship when thinking about one's own marital status. After all, the central conflict of Ulysses is the fact that Molly's cheating on Bloom, who himself likes to look at and think about other women besides his wife. But the insight I gained after reading Molly's perspective in Penelope offers me an odd comfort. Molly isn't perfect, and neither is Leopold, far from it. She's wrestling with her own questions about their relationship. It's possible to be imperfect, but to still love the other person. And although I hope my relationship with my wife never reaches the level of disconnection that exists between Molly and Bloom, it's helpful to read about their marriage and feel a little bit less alone in my emotions. I remember what was going through my mind as my wife walked down the aisle at our wedding. Wow. I'm really going to spend the rest of my life with her, aren't I? Yes. There it is. We've made it all the way through Ulysses. Thanks so much for listening on my journey reading this book and talking about stories and memories that popped into my head. For the last time, this has been Mimesis and Memory. Thanks for listening.